Hey, thanks for listening today. Another installment of Dre's Rebuke. Today we're going to have three topics to talk about. The filibuster and what that entails. H.R. 8 and H.R. 1446. That's some gun legislation. And the crisis, as they call it, at the border. First, let's start with the filibuster and what the filibuster is pertaining to politics here in the U.S. is basically endless debate, which is used to stall out a bill from passing. It's only used in the Senate. You only really need a simple majority to pass a bill in the Senate. And since we're 50-50, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, if it comes to a tie and it's along party lines, then the vice president, which is Democrat, um, casts a vote and then the bill can pass. But a filibuster effectively gives power to the minority, except in a few cases like budget reconciliation, which is also why the stimulus passed. The filibuster has been there for, I think, in the 1800s, but it was kind of more famously used in the 50s and 60s to try to stop civil rights from bills from passing. A guy by the name of Strom Thurmond you know, had some kind of record 20-something hours of filibustering to try to get this bill not to pass. It still passed. That's just one person trying to filibuster. They can go as long as they can, and then, then the bill will still get voted on. But if you've got 20, 30 senators not wanting a bill to pass in the Senate, they can effectively just trade off turns and just filibuster forever. So that's why they say you need 60 votes in the Senate, a supermajority, to pass a bill. Because if you have 60 votes, then you can do what's known as culture and you can stop the debates. Otherwise, you can't stop the debates besides a few instances and... They can just go forever and ever and ever. Um, when you win an election, let's say in this instance, Joe Biden won. He's a Democrat. In the House, the Democrats have the majority. And in the Senate, it's a tie. But since the Democrats hold the presidency, and the vice president can break the tie. So they affect, uh, essentially have the trifecta here. They've got the House, they've got the Senate, and they've got the presidency. When you, ha- when you win, I think that you need to have a chance to govern. If the American people don't like what you've done, then you can vote them out. It's like term limits. People always say, hey, we need to start having term limits for these congressmen. Well, we effectively or essentially do have term limits. It's called voting. When in doubt, vote them out. There's a lot of talk about the Democrats wanting to end the filibuster. Now, this can be good or bad. For them right now, it would be good. If they lose the presidency ever, then the Republicans will do the same thing, and then for them it becomes bad. As it stands right now, If I was the Democrats, I would put forth a few bills. If the other side refuses to work with you, I would do whatever I could to end the filibuster and get stuff done. Kind of like, well, we won. You didn't. We're going to flex on you. The pros of filibuster is this to me, is 
It promotes bipartisanship. Even though the Democrats have the House, have the Senate, have the presidency, close to half of Americans voted the other way. And that's pretty much generally the case always, right? I think it's best if they can get together and do a little give and take. Like, okay, we're the majority here, but we want your support. Looks better for the country. And here's what we propose. If you want to take a little bit of stuff out of this or try to get, you know, something a little bit for your constituents, then let's do it. Um, I do feel like it gives the minority too much power. For instance, in this stimulus bill, not a single Republican voted for it. Not a single one. Now, the $2.2 trillion one last March, well, a lot of them did. So it kind of just goes to say that they're not willing to work with the Democrats. This bill was going to pass no matter what. I feel like it would have been smart for them to say, hey, this bill is going to pass. And since we cannot filibuster it, it's going to pass for sure. Nothing we can do about it. Let's work with the Democrats Try to maybe make it a little bit less money. Maybe take a little bit of things out of it. But it's going to pass anyway. So let's at least pretend like we're working with them. And then maybe when the next bill comes up, we can say, hey, we work with you on the last one. Let's dial this one down. Remember that. And I think it would look good on them. But, you know, maybe that's just me. Um, the cons of the filibuster is, like I was saying, it makes the minority have too much power. And if you're in the minority, you want to be in the majority. So what do you do? You just stall out every single piece of legislation that you don't want. And you try to make the current administration as ineffective as possible. So then when the midterms come up, like in this instance, you can say, hey, the do-nothing Democrats, you know, they, they didn't get a dang thing done. Well, because you blocked them. And then the people voting Democrat are going to be like, man, this administration is ineffective. They're not getting anything done. I'm not even going to the polls. Well, that's what the other side wants. And then it starts riling up their base. And they're like, hey, they're not doing anything. Let's go to the polls. Next thing you know, Republicans have back control of the Senate. Now really nothing's going to get done. If something didn't get done when you had control of the House and the Senate and the presidency, if it's split, you really ain't going to get nothing done. And your hands are tied and then you're doing a lot of executive orders and whatever you can do, but pretty much nothing's getting passed. Unless you can get some bills that both people agree on. And, man, that seems to be harder and harder to come by. So, the filibuster, I don't think, is is good. Like I said, I think it has its pros as far as trying to get people to work together. But everything's so polarized right now that the Democrats aren't really trying to work with the Republicans. The Republicans aren't working with the Democrats. And I think... You know, part of Obama's 
problem when he became president is he spent too much time trying to work with the other side. Time goes by fast. A month turns into a year. And I feel like during your presidency, the first year you can try to get some stuff done. The second year, you're not trying to get a whole bunch done because you're worried about these midterms. And you don't want to do anything too crazy or risky that maybe makes you lose some seats in the House or in the Senate. Now you got your third year. You can try to sit, get some stuff done in your third year. What about your fourth year? Nah, you're worried about re-election now. So now you're back to getting really nothing or not much done. Then if you get re-elected again, well, now you got your first year again. Second year you're worried because of midterms again. And then you probably got your third and fourth year. You might worry a little bit on your fourth year about getting the next administration in and keeping it, you know, the ball in your court or your side, your team. But you really only got two or four years out of an eight-year term to get anything really effectively done. So, like I said, I would try to work with the other side because it's best if you can have bipartisan bills going through, some Republicans, some Democrats, of course, you're going to get more, in this case, Democrats. If you can bring a few Republicans over, at least you can show um, some support or you can show that people can work together. But if you're just going to stall everything out, um, what I would do is get rid of the filibuster. may bite you in the butt later, but otherwise nothing's going to get done. So that's kind of my take on the filibuster and why it's good, and why it's bad. So the second segment is on gun bills, specifically H.R. 8 and H.R. 1446. I believe both these bills have passed the House with bipartisan support. I think it was either four or eight Republicans signed on, one Democrat went against it, but there is bipartisan support. These two bills are pretty much bills already there. They're kind of strengthening them and closing up the loopholes. And the problem with loopholes is anytime that there's a bill and somebody can exploit a loophole, they're going to do it. This will stop the loophole, the gun show loophole, the internet sale loophole, the selling the gun to your, your friend loophole. I mean, I might want to sell my gun to my friend Billy. And, you know, Billy might be like, hey, thanks for the gun. And my friend Billy that I thought I knew, maybe he was uh, a felon and had an attempted murder charge five or ten years ago that I didn't know about. And maybe he's looking to kill again. There's no background check. Here you go. Here's a gun. I don't know who I'm giving it to or selling it to. Trading. Example kind of of this loophole, if I have a job that says, you've got to wear a mask or you don't get to work here. Let's say this job can't just put a rule into place. They've got to go through a board and, you know, go through some hoops and stuff to get this, this rule passed at work. They come up to me and say, hey, Darren, you're not wearing your mask. And I say, oh, I'm wearing my mask. Look at my wrist. And I've got this mask tied around my wrist. Say, you never said I had to wear it on my face. 
That's a loophole. The rule they made was intended to have the mask over my nose and my mouth. But it didn't say that. It just said I had to wear a mask. You better believe that when they review this and go back, there is going to be more language, exact language, and that loophole is going to be closed. No point in getting mad about it. It's already passed, but you just tried to get cute. So, gun shows, internet sales, selling a gun to your buddy. You can still sell your gun to your buddy. You're going to have to have that gun go through a licensed dealer, a middleman, get a background check done. Then you can sell your gun to your friend. Is it going to take a little bit more time? Sure. Probably a little cost. But you have to have somebody facilitate this. Can't just have these guns just going wherever. The second bill is H.R. 1446. And that's the known as the Charleston loophole. I believe the law kind of stated that you go get a background check. If it doesn't come back in three days, they'll sell you the gun. And I see a lot of problems inherently with that. So this guy happens to be a white supremacist. Goes to buy a gun. The background check didn't come back in three days. He gets the gun. He don't like black people. Remember, he's a white supremacist. Goes into a church while they're having their Bible study and kills nine people. They want to change the background check from three days to ten days. I can't think of a lot of instances where I need to have a gun right now. Guns usually a pretty, you know, substantial purchase. People collect guns. People like to go hunting. People want them for personal protection. Whatever they want their gun for, it's usually not something where I need to have a gun right now. If I need to have a gun right now, it's probably for a pretty specific action. And a lot of times that's not going to be a very good one. So, could he still kill people in this church without a gun? Sure. Could he have maybe still got a gun without these loopholes? Maybe. Would it have been harder for him to get a gun? Sure. If he was trying to get a gun legally and some stuff came out, could it have raised a red flag? Maybe could have some of this stuff got stopped? Well, possibly that too. So I know it's not going to stop everything. You can have every argument you want. But will it help? Will it help somewhat? I think it will. So these bills were kind of already bills. Just people exploring the loopholes. You got to believe loopholes will get... They'll get tied up. Another example of a loophole is like... Automatic weapons are banned. What do people do? They want to have a loophole with a bump stock. What do you think is going to happen? 
they're going to ban bump stocks. So whether you're for or against some of this um, gun legislation, you cannot do these loopholes. You can, but they're just going to close them up. So I get it. People get real passionate about the Second Amendment, your right to bear arms. Everybody should not have a gun. You going to give your two-year-old kid a gun, load a gun? No. That'd be irresponsible, right? What about to many mentally unstable people? Should they be walking around with guns? No, probably not. Somebody, uh, a felon? Tempted murder, convicted murder, armed robbery. Should these people be walking around with guns? No, they should not. So we've got people that are too unstable to be having guns. People that are too young to be having guns. There's a lot of reasons for people not to have guns. Law-abiding citizens having guns? It's fine. So, to me, this isn't restricting or taking away anybody's guns. It is just closing the loopholes. And I think all these these loopholes being closed is a good thing. Maybe it's even .002. Maybe it makes a few people more safe. I don't think that's a bad thing. So... That's kind of in a nutshell, HR8 and HR1446. So this last segment, which probably get a little beat up over and may last a little bit longer than usual, is immigration. The U.S. has 40 million immigrants foreign-born in the U.S., which is more than any other country in the world, according to Pew Research. Um, we have 10.9 million Mexican-born individuals in the U.S. Now, that sounds like a lot, and it is. But in 2018, where do you think the top country of origin of people coming into the U.S. was from? If you were to say Mexico, you would be wrong. It is China. If you were to say number two, had to be Mexico, you would be wrong again. The correct answer would be India. Mexico is number three. I heard on the news the other day, this guy was talking about he had some land. His family had some land for over 100 years on the U.S.-Mexico border. And that Biden needed to do the right thing by completing this wall. Said, you know, a lot of the wall was built, but kind of over by where he lives, the wall was unfinished. And everybody's getting funneled through there and and cause him a lot of problems. So I'll get back to that later. But to me, that made absolutely zero sense. I know a lot of people think that 
under Barack Obama's administration that people south of the border were just coming in in droves. And under Trump's last administration that he was cracking down on it. And now we're back under Biden's administration. And now the floodgates are open again. In 2020, the removal of undocumented, illegal, whatever you want to call them, immigrants in the U.S., the removal under Trump was the lowest since ICE was created in 2003. Let me repeat that. The removal of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. was the lowest since ICE was created in 2003. Now, what Trump did do is he was tough on immigration. He was tough on legal immigration. I mean, he allowed less green cards than about anybody. But Barack Obama deported more in either one of his terms than Trump did in, in his term. So he could take Barack Obama's first term, or he could take his second term, first term really a lot more, Deported more people than Trump did. That's facts. If you don't believe me, um, you can look it up. I do think there is a problem at the border. Crisis? I, I don't know. Back to the guy that's had the land for 100 years and, you know, if Biden would just finish the wall, look. If most of the wall was already built and now there's all of a sudden a problem. So there wasn't a problem and now, you know, most of the wall is built and there's a problem. To me, if you take all these ICE officers and now since you got this wall that protects anything, everything should be easier to protect a smaller area. Just redistribute the ICE agents to the parts that aren't built. If the wall is such a great thing. I mean, if I have a boat with a pea-sized hole versus a basketball-sized hole, isn't the boat that has the basketball-sized hole going to sink a lot faster? So to me, that's just saying how ineffective this wall is. Most people I know live within 50 miles of where they or their spouse was born. I'd say over 50%, with even a higher percentage living in the same state where they were born. And it's got to be super high of people living in the same country they were born. You think most of these people want to leave their country? They don't. But when there's no jobs, no money, no food, no hope, they're going to do what they have to do. Guatemala to the U.S., Road distance is 1,622 miles. For perspective, it's 2,100 miles from the U.S. West Coast to the East Coast. Can you imagine? I, can, I, I live in Salt Lake City, and I cannot imagine um, walking to the next city down. It's 400-something miles from Salt Lake City to Las Vegas, and I can't even fathom walking that. 
1,600 miles? I mean, that's desperation. So what are we going to do about this? You know, there's people who's like, lock them up. Well, we're not going to lock them up. We're not going to shoot them or do anything crazy like this. We need to give some aid to these countries. People don't like that. It's already costing us a lot of money. We need to give aid in the form of food and infrastructure, food, infrastructure, and maybe maybe some education. If that don't work, it ain't going to stop everything. But if that don't work and help a lot, we can pull the money back. Um, number two, we need to educate people. I don't care if we drop pamphlets out of a plane. These people need to know the process of coming to the U.S., what they need to do to get a green card, um, what what's the criteria, and how to go about it. Just showing up ain't going to work. I mean, taking this long uh, pilgrimage just to get sent back, man, that's, that's tough. I mean, yeah, there's got to be consequences if you're just trying to keep coming over and over and over. And we catch you and say, hey, you ain't supposed to be here. And you keep doing it. Okay, we're going to have to do something. You've got these unaccompanied minors. And that's a real you know, touchy subject. We need to have some of these other countries um, get on board with us. We need to be talking to these other countries. Say, hey, we've got 500 of your people coming over here. And we're not allowing them in. And we're going to ship them back. I'd say we'd like to split the cost. But it's probably not going to happen. We're going to have to endure the cost of some of this i can tell you what if i did a pilgrimage all the way from guatemala only to find out that i'm getting spun around and they take me by bus boat or plane back to the guatemala i'm probably not going to turn around and start walking right back but if i think that i'm going to come here and i'm going to get set up and get a job and get a house and get government assistance well i might some of these people are are just desperate So, I don't think it would hurt to, you know, have a number of people we're going to let into this country a year. Whether we want to do it by region, we want to do it by, I don't know what. But we need to have a number of people that we're going to let in. We already do let a certain amount of people in, but it's not a set number. Maybe we need to have a set number. But this wall was not going to be the answer. And if it was, we wouldn't all of a sudden have um, what we're calling a crisis now. So, kind of my bullet points here are... We need to send aid to some of these countries. We need to be communicating with these other countries. We need to have some sort of education program where these people don't have a false sense of hope of what's going to happen when they get to the U.S. Because if we have these people in these tents and we're cramming them in, cramming them in and trying to send them back and there for 100, 100 more days 
it is just putting a, a drain on the U.S. But if you knew that you were going to do this whole long trek and you're just going to get spun around, then you probably wouldn't do it. Now, there is a process, and it seems pretty complicated on some of the stuff I looked at, to get a green card or to become a U.S. citizen. We can't just let everybody in here. I understand that. And the people that are already here, that's maybe been here since they're a baby, we're not sending them back. We do need to deal with that as well. But we need to deal with uh, the issue at hand here. And I think between education and aid, it would go a long way to stop some of this um, unauthorized immigration. And we also need to take a look while we're at it of... You know, the reason these people are coming over besides hope is promises of jobs. And who's hiring these people? We need to go after stuff like that. But building a wall is not going to be the answer. And it wasn't the answer. And it's never going to be the answer. So. That's kind of my just brushed over. As quick as I can in 10 or 15 minutes, give my opinion on what's going on at the border. So that's going to be it for today's episode. As always, if you have a comment or question you'd like to ask me, go ahead and hit me up at grazerebuke at gmail.com. I'm not sure what platform everybody's listening to this podcast on, but you can find me at Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public. So, I say, if you like the podcast, share it with one person. If you love it, share it with two. And if you hate it, share it with three. Thanks for listening.